You can take a seat. What a beautiful picture that is of the, slow, the slowness and the stillness of the season leading to the power that would come into our world on Christmas Day. I clearly have not practiced my candlelight, even with this torch. We are entering into the third week of the week of, or the month of preparation before Christmas. It's hard to believe that we're halfway home, that we are literally halfway to, to Christmas. And today we light the, the pink candle and that anticipation, that spirit of hope. And I don't know about you, but like there are times throughout the season that you definitely can feel that. You can see it. And then there are other times where you might be watching a TV show or you might be watching commercials or having conversations with coworkers where that, that just doesn't seem to be the case. Or that hope is misplaced. That hope is in the presents to come or that hope is in the bonus that's going to come at work or that hope is in Christmas break from school. Today we want to slow down and focus on the hope as it should be. Replace our hope and where it, where it needs to be. So we've been going through for communion uh, the dwell Advent readings. And I'm going to start today with the, the opening quote from G.K. Chesterton. He says, Pessimism is not in being tired of evil, but in being tired of good. Despair does not lie in being weary of suffering, but in being weary of joy. It's a super interesting perspective as we start our morning. It's the beginning of the third week of Advent, and we may have already be weary of the holiday season. Festive decorations have been up for weeks. Canned tunes about snowmen, Santa Claus, and reindeer might already start to be losing their charm. Even Handel's Messiah may be starting to sound a little stale. If we eat another Christmas cookie, we may toss them out. We've already been to 14 Christmas parties, or we're aware that everyone else has been through their Instagrams, and the loneliness of the season might start feeling unbearable. By the time Christmas Day finally actually arrives, we're ready to be through with the whole business. This season of Advent is a gift to us. The present that reminds us to be present in our waiting rather than settling for the immediate, cheap substitution of the real thing. Patience can be a difficult matter uh, to master within ourselves. And that temptation is all around us to choose the sugar cookie over the waiting for the bread of life. Thankfully, Scripture presents us with helpful encouragement. James tells us to look to the prophets to learn how to persevere in patient waiting. Look to the prophet Isaiah, who says it's actually in the wilderness, not in the big box store, where we will find our joy. Trust the prophets. We do not want to miss out on the true joy in favor of a cheap substitution just because it has a fast free delivery. Joy is nothing short of profound, awe-filled recognition that all things in this perishing world are being made new. The desert blooms. The deaf hear. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. These things are to be done in the Lord's time, and they're worth waiting for. Advent is the beginning of the church calendar. We should not feel stale and weary, but refreshed and invigorated. Let us seek out the Lord in the quiet places, 
and be refreshed anew so that we, no longer weary, may be prepared to rejoice in all that is to come. Let's pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are solely, sorely hindered by our sins, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. We're going to turn to communion now and some music will begin to play. We have stations set up all around the room. If you need gluten-free communion, we have that on the platform on either side. And we also have one station back there with the candles that are lit by the camera. So you can um, find whichever one is most convenient for you. But while you head to communion, we also want to read the, the reflective practice. These are questions and musings that should stir our hearts in preparation uh, for what's to come today. Take some time to identify three ways that you could fast from the sugar-fueled hyperactivity of the holiday season and commit to keeping that fast for the remainder of Advent. It's only two weeks. These can be small sacrifices like not saying Merry Christmas or singing carols before the 25th or larger sacrifice like refraining from feasting during a fasting season. The important thing is not so much the scale of the sacrifices, but that they ensure you do not weary of the joy of Christmas before it arrives. We continue worshiping you this morning, our God, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit. We are grateful for your presence. We are grateful to have the constant reminder that we are not alone. And we're grateful for Christmas. I pray that during this season we would not get tired of the truth behind all you've done for us, but that instead we will find ourselves with a new sense of awe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd have to admit I'm a little overwhelmed. Uh, that, that, that last song, both songs uh, were incredible, but that last song, uh, even though I heard it during practice, I was caught off guard by it just to have that beautiful juxtaposition of Silent Night and then the last week of Jesus' life, his death. Burial and resurrection put together um, caught me off guard in a great way. And then we come in and have a reading that says you might be getting tired of Christmas. So just a really great uh, swirl of themes going this morning. I might also be overwhelmed because um, I have been, along with Kim, earning a master's degree in influenza A this past week. And uh, so... She started with it um, the, Monday, the Monday after Thanksgiving and is still not completely back to normal. And then in the process of caring for her, I decided that it'd be good to see what it's like. And I got to tell you, um, I had pneumonia about 11 years ago. That's about as bad as I've felt since then. It was not very good. So I'm a little weird in this way. Um, I would have no problem entering a leper colony and helping everybody I can. But if I'm the leper, I scream unclean, unclean, and tell you to stay away. So I've been told that theoretically I am no longer infectious, but today I'm going to just wave from a distance. I didn't even, you know, I've not coughed all morning, sneezed all morning. I am feeling normal as normal can be, but just in case. It might also explain the fact that I might seem a little loopy as I'm talking this morning, but <laughs> nothing unusual about that. So, so I did discover the cure to influenza A, and I am willing to share. Hallmark movies. 
And you can take that any way you want. Uh, you may take that, that Hallmark movies give you comfort and cheer you up and make you happy. Or you may take it that it motivates you to get off the frickin' couch as quickly as you can. And uh, I've been motivated. So we were watching one the other day, and I'm so grateful because I learned some things about angels I never knew before. So Dave and Corinne are working in a bookstore, a music store. Dave owns it, and Corinne doesn't realize that she should fall in love with this guy. But thank goodness God is going to intervene. Jerry and Angel, as well as Harold, have been sent to earth to help these two discover each other once again. And so Harold is told he's got till Christmas Eve to bring them together in true love, or he will dis discover the fate of every angel who does not make it to heaven. He will be a hot dog vendor in New York for the rest of his life. And so he works and works and tries his best, and they're just not getting it because she's still in love with this lunkhead that you just want to punch in the face. And basically, by the time they're done, something happens, spark, he gives her an ornament, there's happiness and joy, they kiss, and there goes not Harold, but actually Henry, who happens to be her grandfather, who wrote a song before he went off to World War II, or one. I don't know, I was sick. But anyway, <laughs> she's playing the song, he knows the song, joy to the world, oh my goodness, it is no wonder we are so confused about angels. It is absolutely no wonder we are so confused about angels. And that is why we've chosen to take this event season to talk about angels. Last week, we got a start on this study known as angelology, the theology of angels. And I have a few uh, resources to commend to you on this, okay? There are some books that I've found really helpful. This is probably my favorite on the topic. It's written by uh, Fred Dickinson, uh, a professor in the past at Moody Bible Institute. It's called Angels Elect and Evil. E elect and Evil, the good angels and the bad angels, the ones that are in God's presence as well as the demons. And uh, it's written a little bit like his, uh, like his class notes. It's outline form, but it is full of details. If you're wanting to know more about angels, I would recommend you head right here. The second one that I've really appreciated is by David Jeremiah. I love David Jeremiah. I love his teaching. Um, I think he's just level-headed and, and profound. And this particular book is a lot more conversational. It does not feel like an outline. Um, in fact, it, I think basically what you have here is a transcription of his sermons and teachings throughout the years on angels, but, but this one was also very helpful. Uh, I have a third that I've not read yet. I, I actually read an article by this guy. Uh, he's a Trinity professor where I went. His name is Graham Cole, and it's called Against the Darkness. I'm not ready to recommend it, but I will say it's published by Crossway, and Crossway is one of the few Christian publishers I trust these days. So uh, that one's pretty good. Then there's the final one, and this one is more, um, it's artistic. I would not recommend this as the foundation of your theology of angels. What I, the reason I, I would commend this to you is because it gives you an idea of the way the cosmic forces of good and evil are taking place like just beyond what we can see. If we could tear right now, we would see what's happening. It's a book written now several years ago by Frank Preddy called This Present Darkness. And it just gives you an idea, while we're playing out this, this battle here on earth, what's going on just beyond. So again, please don't read that book and say, now you have a complete understanding of angelology, and that's not why he wrote the book. He wrote the book to wake us up 
to the reality of the spiritual warfare that's taking place around us all the time. So as we started last week, we, we looked at some basics. We know that angels are created beings. Uh, they, they were present at the time of creation. And while they are heavenly beings, they are not divine. They are not gods. They are not even close to God. In fact, we're more like God than they are in that we're created in the image of God. They are not. They're like us in this regard. They have free will. They can choose to obey. They can choose to rebel. Rebellion, of course, is the root of all sin. The choice to do life on my own. The choice to be my own God. Satan was a rebel. And he led a rebellion among those that are now known as, as fallen angels or demons. So I mentioned the book called Against the Darkness by Graham Cole, and he has a great article called 10 Things You Should Know About Angels. He wrote this. I think it's really helpful. Angels are judged by believers. I'm going to just read this in its entirety. Human beings and angels are persons. I've never really thought about it that way. At the very least, they have the ability to say, I in speech, and that is a sufficient reason for ascribing personhood to a creature. The angel who appears to John speaks in these terms, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophet, and the prophets. Both human beings and angels are, are moral persons. Their creator holds both kinds of creature accountable for their actions. Consequently, consequently both fallen angels and fallen human beings face the same divine judgment. Happily for believers, Christ has faced it for us. In the hierarchy of creaturely importance, it appears that human beings are actually higher than the angels. According to Paul, every believer, believers judge the angels. We find this in 1 Corinthians 6.3. There is no biblical evidence to support the opposite, that angels judge us. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is actually challenging the church because when they have legal disputes with each other, other believers... Rather than settling it within the context of uh, divine wisdom in the church, in the body of Christ, they're going to pagan law courts to settle their issues. And this is what he writes. He says, when one of you has a grievance against the other, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you... Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to life? Think about it. We will be judged by God for all the things we do in this life. But Paul says that we as servants of God will be the one to judge angels in their acts of rebellion. And while we're talking about angelic rebellion, I wanted to add something here. We may talk more about it next week when we talk about myths and misunderstandings about angels. Satan is not God's equal, opposite, divine, evil counterpart. God and evil are not equal, opposite counterparts. Satan and the fallen angels still have limits, and those limits are placed on them by God, what they're able to do. You, you want proof? Look at Job 1. God says to Satan, you can do anything to Job up to taking his life. They are not divine equal counterparts. There is no wondering. We heard it in the song this morning. There is no wondering who is going to win the cosmic holy war. God was never not in control. He won at the cross. 
And we're just in the mopping up stages now. So what else did we learn last week? The word angel, uh, malak in the Old Testament, angelos in the New Testament, means messenger. And this is the primary message, uh, primary task of an angel. They deliver with accuracy and speed the message of the king. Sometimes it's a verbal message. And sometimes it's a message of protection and defense. Sometimes it is comfort and nourishment. But it's always on God's behalf. The angel does not originate the message. It is from God. In Daniel, we see that they are involved in in delivering actually answers to prayer. We also saw that there exists rank in the angelic realm. There is order. Michael is called the archangel. He has command over other angels. We do not know all the ranks, but we know that the angels have leaders as well as those who submit to leadership, and all of them submit to the leadership of God the Father. So where do we go next? I'd like to look at their nature, the nature of an angel. And I'm going to restate it again. This is so important. They are created beings. They are not God. They are not divine. They are created beings. They'll never achieve God-like status. Even if they help a couple fall in love, they will never achieve God-like status. So what does that teach us? They're very powerful. In some ways, they're more powerful human be- than human beings. None of us can fly. They are very powerful. But they are not omnipotent. They are very powerful, but they do not have the limitless power of God. We saw that last week in Daniel chapter 10. An angel is trying to deliver a message to Daniel, one that had been received from prayer 21 days before, and yet he's tied up with someone called the Prince of Persia, who we understand to be a demonic force. And Michael, the archangel, has to come and rescue him so that he can deliver the message. An omnipotent being would not require help, would never require help. Further, they are not infinite in either being or in number. Unlike God, they had a starting point. They were created just like us. And while there is not an infinite number of angels, it is fair to refer to them as innumerable, like the sands of the sea, so to speak. Innumerable. The Bible uses imagery of vastness to describe the number of angels. We see this in the Christmas story, right? A multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, when Jesus rebukes his disciples for taking up arms, he speaks of all the angels at God's disposal. He says, do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12,000 legions of angels? Now, I don't know about you, but I know my first instinct on this. Google a Roman legion. I want to know how many soldiers are in a Roman legion. I want to multiply it by 12 and figure out how many angels he's talking about. And I really don't think that's the point of what Jesus is saying. In the Bible, we find that the word legion starts to simply refer to a multitude or a vast number. You're supposed to get the idea that there are a lot, a lot, a lot of angels Remember when Jesus frees the demoniac from his spiritual oppression? He says to Jesus, my name is Legion, for we are many. There are a whole bunch of us in here. And ultimately, when they're cast out, they go inhabit 2,000 swine. The writer of Hebrews speaks of the vastness 
of the heavenly hosts. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come down to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. The English Standard Version simply uses the word innumerable instead of thousands and thousands. Then we have these words from from Daniel. Beautiful, beautiful text. You may want to just want to read this one a few times this Christmas. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, God himself. His clothing was white as snow. His hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Moving on from, from the number, I want to look at their composition. What are they, what's an angel made of? Well, angels are, are spirit beings. They're spirit beings, but they can take on bodily form. And we saw last week, as well as we've seen with Jesus after he comes back from heaven, that this spiritual being who's able to take on a bodily form can actually do things like, like eat, which is just really incredible. David Jeremiah references a quote by a uh, a great spiritual leader, theologian uh, from past century, A.W. Tozer. He writes this about spiritual beings. He says, Spirit means existence on a level above and beyond matter. It means life subsisting in another mode. Spirit is a substance that has no weight, no dimension, no size, or no extension in space. These qualities belong to matter. And it can have no application to spiritual. Yet, spirits, yet spirit has true being and objective reality. As spirits, they are not embodied. But like God, that is not to say they are not omnipresent. They can only be in one place at one time. But they can move with lightning speed. They, they, they have the speed of the wind. Psalm 104 tells us this says he, God, lays the beams of his chamber on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the winds, wings of the wind. He makes his messenger's winds, his minister's flames of fire. Remember, messenger, angelos, angel. There it is. And in case you're wondering if that refers to angels, the writer of Hebrews clarifies it. He quotes the verse and he says, of his angels, he says, he makes his angels' winds, his ministers, a flame of fire. We get a sense of their form in the glorified body of Jesus. We see ways in which Jesus was able to appear in a room with a locked door and then disappear all at once, moving from one place to another with spirit wind and spirit speed. So I want to move on from their nature to look at different types of angels. Not all angels are alike, either in design or in designation of task. By now, you know, we're about literally halfway through this series. We've, and, and so at this point, I think it's not a bad idea to say, you may end up having a question that I never raise. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to do something. Not, we're not doing this live per se, but church phone number is 815-290-9595. You can text that thing at any time. And when you do, it comes to us immediately. I'd love to know if you have a question about angels, and we'll try to address them next week as we're talking myths and misunderstandings or in another message if necessary. 
Um, but you can text that. Just make sure you include your name. I like to know who I'm talking to instead of playing that mystery game, or you can also email me with that. Quite possible I'll answer all your questions in the next 15 minutes, and we'll be good to go, but, but I suspect I might not. So let's talk about different kinds of angels. Not all angels are like. They mostly differ in function, so they also differ a bit in appearance as well. The Bible has one angel that it refers to repeatedly in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And by Lord, I mean capital L-O-R-D, Lord. When in caps in the Bible, Lord is the word, I should have put this on the screen, tetragrammaton. It's the tetragrammaton. The Hebrew name of God transliterated into four letters, Y-H-W-H or or J-H-V-H, whichever way. And it's articulated Yahweh or Jehovah. The Jewish people would never say this name of God out loud. They'd never do it in a sign of utter respect for the name of God. When I took Hebrew, uh, we'd be reading the text out loud. The professor might be reading. And if he came to that word Yahweh, he wouldn't read it. He'd insert the word Adonai in there instead, which is another name for Lord. Tremendous respect for the name. I gotta tell you, it's a far cry from our times. Uh, Why is it bad to say, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God? That, That should make our skin crawl. Why is it bad to say, oh my God? It removes the name of meaning. It treats the name like any other common word. You might as well say French fry or chicken nugget. You remove the meaning from the word. The word God is not like any other word. We shouldn't resist saying it like the Jewish people, but when we do use it, we should avoid using it as a meaningless, vapid, vain, empty slur. We should always use the word with meaning. Back to the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is a unique designation for an Old Testament appearance of God or Jesus, a Christophany or a theophany. It's mentioned 52 times in the Old Testament. And this is the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord. The two are very different, okay? The angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, Abraham, and Sarah, Moses in the burning bush, Balaam in the donkey in Numbers 22. A few times in Judges, especially to Gideon, appears to Elijah a couple times. His appearance is destructive. When he appears to David, for example, uh, on the Jebusite threshing floor after the plague has been sent on the land. Or in Isaiah, when, when 185 Assyrian soldiers are struck down, when they're about to attack King Hezekiah. There are a couple other mentions as well. Now, Dickinson, the, the angels elected in evil, has a, has a really, really good chapter on the angel of the Lord if you want to know more. There is this sense in which the angel of the Lord, when you're reading about it, is distinct from Jehovah or distinct from God the Father, leading us to conclude that this is a manifestation of Christ. It's a manifestation of Christ prior to his birth. The angel of the Lord does not appear after the birth of Christ, only prior. Each moment of appearance is a unique God encounter, more than just an angelic appearance. So when we read the angel of the Lord, we shouldn't just think of it as an angel. This is Christ appearing to people. 
The second special angel is one we've already looked at. We've looked at the archangel. He's mentioned in Daniel, which we've already seen last week, when he's wrestling, helping this angel in distress. We see him in the book of Jude. It says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. We'll look at that in a minute. And then in Revelation chapter 12, cosmic battle. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels, demons, fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any space for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. In all of three of these, Michael is involved in a battle, two of them with Satan himself. The term archangel is actually a military term, indicating that he is uh, the general of the angels, or a general of the angels, so to speak. Arch means first. However, in Daniel, he's also referred to as one of the heavenly princes. It is not clear if he's the only archangel or if there are more. This is one of those, the text doesn't tell us more, we will find out in the angel class in heaven. Let's go back to the verse on Jude for a moment. This verse is significant. I want to flip back there. This verse is significant in that it indicates that Michael understood his nature and his mission. He's the archangel, the first angel. That, that, could, that could get you buzzing with some power, right? That could make you think you're the man, you're in control. You are the main angel. But he understood his nature and his mission. He did not have the power on his own to overcome Satan. He had to rely on God. God is supreme over evil, not Michael. Michael may have been Ark, he may have been first, but he still recognizes himself as one under authority, the authority of God himself. He is a messenger. He is not God or even God-like. There are two other special categories of angels in the Bible beyond uh, the generic designation of angel that we want to look at. And those are the cherubim and seraphim. And I know for some of you, you just went to holy, 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 right? You're back to to verse 2, cherubim and seraphim, falling down before thee, which wert and art and evermore shall be. Let's break down the name first. Both of these angels are listed in the plural. That suffix im, I am, it's pronounced im, uh, that is like the English S. When you see im on a word in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that's Hebrew saying more than one, plural. So technically we would not call them cherubs and seraphs, but we are English and it's legitimate in English. Having said that, the im tells us that we're talking about plurals. While all angels are ministering on God's behalf, The cherubim and seraphim are related to the direct presence of God. They often have specific assignments straight from the Father. Like Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is really interesting. I don't know if you've seen classic art depicting 
uh, the gate of Eden being guarded. If you, if you have, just kind of get it in your mind right now. How many angels are there? Normally in those depictions, in those artistic depictions, it's one. But what does it say? The cherubim. There's more than one. There's more than one angel guarding this gate at the very moment. It, 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 at that moment, it's, it's the cherubim. So I think, again, there's a lesson for us here. Art is beautiful. Whether image or sculpture or song or movie, miniseries, TV show, whatever. But art is not Scripture. Art very properly inspires us. Beauty is vital to the human experience, and I think vital to the spiritual experience. But our art always needs to be checked in light of biblical truth. Artists mean well, but they don't always get the details right. The same could be said for pastors, okay? Always check what I say. Always check what a, a songwriter writes. Always check what a, what a movie maker makes in light of Scripture. Scripture is the place we go for truth. Cherubim have a unique role in protecting the holiness of God. Cherubim are, are crafted above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the laters of the lost Ark? Right, when the, the lid is taken off and the priest's face melts? Those, those, those angels there, those are, those are two cherubim on top of the Ark. The ornate cherubim hover over the literal resting place of God. His throne on earth. Ezekiel also makes reference to cherubim. He, he refers to complex, multi-faced, mighty, fearsome creatures with four wings and four faces. And yet, interestingly, not all cherubim have four wings and four faces. I am not sure at all when cherubs became little chubby valentine babies. <laughs> you see, in the Bible, cherubs are they're awesome and they're intense, and they're, they're frightening in a good way. They're fearsome, and they're powerful. They dwell in the very presence of God, not on top of Valentine candy. Now let's look at the seraphim. Very similar to cherubim, they're unique. They're very similar to cherubim, yet they're unique. It's from the, the cherubim and seraphim that we get the imagery of wings. And I say imagery. Uh, the wings of these creatures are literal. Not all angels have wings. Cherubim have two. We saw some that have four. Seraphim, around the throne of God, have six. Again, Ezekiel's have four faces and four wings. But wings depict speed. They depict swiftness. They depict ease of movement. Think of what you could do with wings stuck out on 55. Oh my goodness, the world would be a better place. The seraphim are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 6. We saw this passage last week as they're flying in the presence of God, two wings covering the face, two covering the feet, and two flying around. Cherubim and seraphim have a unique role. They serve, they serve as prime worshipers. Their constant mission is to bring praise and honor to God. They teach us how to worship, repeating again and again and again the name of God. Even the wings teach us something. Two covering the face depict unworthiness. Two covering the feet depict humility. Two flying around move wherever God desires Two classes of angels were created simply to constantly 
cry praise to God. They serve as the proclaimers and protectors of God's glorious presence, His sovereignty, and His holiness. Now, at the beginning of the teaching, again, I referred to the book by Dickinson, Angel of Select and Evil. This is an Advent series, and I want to keep our eyes on the the elect side. We're not going to spend Advent talking demons. But Ezekiel chapter 38 is to believe to be about Satan. And a couple of key verses from that passage are really important. God says of Satan, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And he goes through all these beautiful stones that cover him. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Satan was a cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in the midst. You sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Satan was one of God's cherubim, a prime worshiper, but pride gripped his heart and he fell. So this is where we're going to close. Uh, Next week, we'll move on to myths and misunderstandings. And again, text or email your questions. And there are two lessons as we walk away. The first is this disobedience is never far away. Just when you think you've got sin mastered, get ready. Satan was a cherub worshiping God in his very presence. He was beautiful and awesome. And one day he looked in the mirror and said, I am beautiful and I am awesome. And pride gripped his heart. Solomon so wisely says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Beware of pride. In every possible form, beware of pride. It never leads anywhere good. The second lesson really is a response of worship. Once again, among God's created beings, God is not content with one size fits all. Even among angels, he's not content to say, eh, just throw me out a million of that model. Everyone is unique and distinct. It has variety. No two snowflakes are alike. No two humans are alike. No two angels are alike. Embracing this part of God's character moves us to embrace all the unique expressions of Him found in His creation. So this week, look everywhere for His creativity. And as you do, turn it into a moment of genuine worship. Oh God, I'm grateful. I'm so grateful that we get a chance to be introduced to these these heavenly beings Thank you for that. God, we never want to worship an angel, but I hope that understanding them brings us to a a unique and beautiful place of worship this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So we flip things on their head. Brian's coming now. The, the, The closing is the opening. The opening is the closing, however you want to put it. You, however, are going to stay over there. So, Because I'd really, really, really love to see my grandchild. Only reason I went and got texted was to find out what I had so I could get rid of it as fast as I possibly could. Uh-huh. I laugh because teachers, you know, they live in a human petri, petri. dish every day. <laughs> so me being sick is kind of a joke. But you have presents. What's I do that have all presents. About? Can I actually get some help? 
would you Ooh. guys come up and like help me hold these real quick? I realize that at Christmas time, it's sometimes difficult to find things that can stuff a stocking. So would you hold these up? We have the softest, the nicest shirts imaginable to... Oh, Robert, you want to come up? You want to hold this one? <clears throat> softest, nicest shirts imaginable for each of our groups. Now, you'll notice that Revive gets a little bit of the, the choice in style, where we only have the black or the blue on black t-shirt. Uh, but they also get the hoodie. Refuge doesn't get the hoodie, but they get their choice of color. So I'm not Amazon. I cannot deliver this two-day shipping and make sure that it happens by Christmas Day. Two-day, same day. Come same, on. Yeah, Come same on. day. Sorry. Come on. But I will do everything in my power to make sure that you get this by Christmas. What we're doing um, for all the t-shirts, doesn't matter which group you're going for, it's 20 bucks. And the, the hoodie is 40 Part of what we're doing with the, the proceeds for that is actually helping to work, send a kid to Green Lake. Um, so not only are you supporting student ministries, but you're also getting literally, I mean, Liz, how soft is that shirt? Tell the people. Really soft, right? <laughs> she says really soft. So, I mean, they are, they are awesome. It's a, it's a great way to in school. Um, you know, instead of wearing just your normal thing, go around and, and tell people not just about Refuge and Revive, but have the opportunity to open up and say, like, what, what is that? What, what is re Refuge? What is Revive? Um, I can tell you from personal experience, I've witnessed as kids like Liz wear these shirts around school. It does start those conversations and it does lead to, uh, to kids walking through our doors and getting to hear about Jesus. So Obviously, um, if you want to keep this a secret, it's going to be a little challenging, but you can come and talk to me. I will make sure that uh, we actually, I bought some bags, uh, some like very secretive sealed bags that you can get uh, from me, uh, but you can talk to any one of our leaders. Again, $20 for the t-shirt, $40 for the hoodie, and yeah, stuff those stockings with something that'll help our groups too, all right? Well, thank you so much for your help. Appreciate it. I'll take those back until you get them at Christmas time, all right? <laughs> couple other Christmas reminders. Christmas is on Sunday, so we're doing church on Saturday and Sunday, Christmas weekend, at 11 a.m. both days. Same service both times. There is one key difference to know, and that is on Christmas Eve, we will offer child care from infant through, uh, through kindergarten, which by then will be relevant to you. But Christmas Day, we'll not be offering child care. And you may be wondering why we're not offering childcare, and the simple reason, it's Christmas Day, and it's not easy to, to, to man that on Christmas Day. Is so it weird often... that I'm still... <laughs> I, I, I know. <laughs> like, I know. Ryan I, and Adam are uh, sitting over the plate analyzing. I, I know. I know. It's, I don't know what it's, to do with my hands. <laughs> I am grateful during the week. Uh, we had some of you go ahead and send in those uh, Christmas images, yeah. cards to us. And again, I love to use those uh, to be able to pray. So... Let's see, December 11th, 1989, at 10 o'clock in the morning, I was sitting in class at Trinity, um, waiting for you, not realizing that for the rest of my life I'd be waiting for you. You were about, you were about two weeks overdue, believe it or not. Your poor mom was in dreadful pain. Uh, we went, I went home and uh, we took a really, really long walk. Mom even jogged a little bit, which is just comical beyond comprehension, wanted you out so bad. And, uh, and then later that night, I had a meeting at church, debated if I should go or not. And I went, I came home at 10.30, and there was still no sign that Brian was going to show up. And, uh, and then, I don't know, it was, we were trying to figure it out yesterday. We believe it was sometime about 12.30, 
uh, that the angel of the Lord let us know that you were coming in his own unique way. And uh, so we started our way to the hospital on one of the colder nights of that December so far. It was very, very cold. And we waited about 12 hours, ironically, till 12.28 a.m., which is the day of our anniversary. I mean, I don't know how you managed that, dude, but that was, that was incredible. <laughs> that, was, that was incredible. I am sentimental. And at 12.28, we saw your face for the very first time. And shockingly, I cried my eyes out. Went out to tell the family, and I'm bawling, and they all thought that something went wrong. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean something wrong? The best thing ever in my life just happened. Remember that, Shelly, Nate. <laughs> I know how to ruin a moment, huh? I, no, not at all, not at all. And what I love is that sometime, hopefully during this next week, because babies do next Sunday, the 18th, you're going to get the same opportunity. And uh, I promise you, no matter what, you will never be the same. And you will always be better for it. So God in heaven, I thank you for our babies. Pray for little E as we wait for him or her to show their face to the world. Help us to never lose the wonder of a child being born into this world. Help us to do everything we can to protect those little lives prior to being born. And then God, help us to do everything we can to pour out the love of Jesus Christ on them when they are born. To remember that every person is a unique creation in the image of God. You have a purpose, a meaning, and a destiny for them. You have a plan for them. They may have their plans, but you determine their steps. Let this be a, a season of wonder for all of us as we wait and anticipate the coming, not just of a pap child, but of the Christ child. Amen. I don't care what you say. Come here, man. <laughs> we, we'll see you next week. We hope not to see him next week. See ya.